This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Friday show. We close another week. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, life questions, any much anything that's on your heart. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call us toll free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you are in your car, I say this every program, it's safest to call by using the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Our main number one more time is 340-9585. A couple of things before we get started. Um, one, tonight we're going to be starting a brand new book, our Friday night studies uh, beginning at 7 o'clock. You can watch it live at calvarysa.com. We're in the book of Ephesians. Um, it is, and I, people at Calvary Chapel are going to laugh when I say this, but it is my favorite New Testament book. I absolutely love it. Um, and uh, we're, we're just going to do an introduction to it tonight at 7 o'clock. Uh, I think everybody will be blessed not only by the introduction, but just stick with us through the book. What God has done for us, the, the first three chapters of this book are more than life-changing. The divine design of this book is is three chapters of everything that God's done, and then the final three chapters is how we should respond to the wonderful gift of life that God has given. So um, that's what we're doing tonight. We are meeting in person here at Calvary Chapel, so anybody who wants to come is able to come. Um, told you before, the crowds are a little bit small still, so uh, we'll see what happens, but we'd love to have you. Uh, the other thing I want to mention, uh, just to a, to a, a precious listener, Princess, uh, I got your letter today. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. And Paula hasn't read it yet. I'll show it to her tonight. But um, bless your heart. Thank you for sending it. It was a wonderful, wonderful encouragement. And you made my day. So, Princess, thank you very, very much. Let's go to questions while we wait your phone calls. Barbara asks me to please explain the sevenfold Spirit of God in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. Barbara, this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 2, where the Spirit is said to be the Spirit of the Lord. 
uh, the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel, the spirit of power, the spirit of knowledge, and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Now, remember Old Testament, and, and Revelation is decidedly Old Testament except for the result. Um, all of the symbols used in Revelation are explained to us in the Old Testament. So, uh, seven was the number of fullness or perfection or completion. And so that's just Jesus' way of saying that the sevenfold Spirit of God is involved in the activities of the church. And if you think about what that Spirit says to us, it's the Spirit of the Lord. I mean, uh, Colossians says that we have the fullness of Christ in the, in the Godhead in bodily form in Jesus Christ. Well, that's Father, Son, and Spirit. Um, the Spirit of Wisdom. We all need wisdom, especially in times like we're living on. Well, we need the Spirit for that. Uh, the Spirit of Understanding. Uh, that's just asking God to give us eyes, spiritual eyes to see. The Spirit of Counsel. Jesus is called the Wonderful Counselor in the same book of Isaiah. Uh, the Spirit of Knowledge. We need to know something. James says if we need uh, information, we can ask the Lord for wisdom who gives it liberally or generously. And then the spirit of the fear of the Lord, of course, the spirit of the Lord, uh, or the fear of the Lord, rather, is something that we all need every single day of our lives. Not, not I'm terrified of you, God, kind of fear, but that filial fear that says, Jesus, I can't imagine being without you. I'm afraid of missing out on anything. And so if we will simply look at that, and in the introduction to the book of Revelation, it's, it's the Son of God who's walking among the seven lampstands. The seven lampstands are the churches. Uh, seven, again, the number of completion. Uh, the seven stars, he holds the seven stars in his hand. That's a reference to the pastors of those seven churches. As a pastor, it always helps me to know that Jesus is holding me. He's got me in my hand. But as we come to church... As he's walking around the Spirit of God, it's the Lord Jesus Christ in us, the hope of glory. He's walking around in the middle of his churches, and that's where we experience him every day. The fear of the Lord. A healthy, filial fear of God. So, Barbara, that's what the reference is to. Thank you for the question. Uh, Seth says, Pastor Ron, I'm discouraged by celebrity leaders in the church and how unapproachable they are. Why and how does this happen to godly men? Um, Seth, attention is a really difficult thing. Now, I think I understand what you mean. Um, I had a pastor when I was a brand new Christian, and he'd been teaching the Word, and, and I wanted to talk to him. I felt like the Lord was telling me to go to Bible college, and I wanted to talk to him. And so I called to make appointments, and I could never get past his secretary. And it was very discouraging. Now, this guy's a good guy. He's now a friend of mine, and, and he, he's certainly not carried away by celebrity. He's a very, very shy man. And he just is uncomfortable, noticeably uncomfortable in public. It's one thing to be behind a pulpit. It's another thing to be one-on-one. And I couldn't get an appointment with him, and it really upset me. Now, I understand a little bit better now, um, but that's just sort of one side of your question. Unfortunately, we have a whole bunch of people that have been blessed by God. They've been given responsibility over these huge, huge churches 
and they become unapproachable. Maybe they read their own press clippings. Maybe they think the success of their church has something to do with them. And here's what I know, Seth. Those are the men that you really need to be praying for because the enemy is going to attack them relentlessly. He's going to do anything and everything that he can to cause them to stumble. So instead of being discouraged by them, pray for them. And God will change your heart. There's no Christian who's ever a celebrity. Jesus is the famous one. I don't know what the name of the song is, but but we sing a song here at Calvary Chapel about him being the famous one. Maybe the title is famous one. I don't know. But but, um, um, Jesus is the only one who's really famous. And we who are servants in the house of God, we're supposed to be sure that he alone gets all the attention. Now, God clearly gives people gifts. And there are people that are such wonderfully gifted communicators that they're going to be admired. But when we remember who we really are, then we don't dare touch God's glory. So let's maybe change your thinking a little bit. Instead of being discouraged by them, begin praying for them. Pray that they would be approachable. Pray that God would watch over their hearts and their minds, that God would keep them from becoming too proudful. I think if you'll pray for him, Seth, you'll be doing a great service for the people of God. I wish it wasn't so, but it's true. There are people that get pretty carried away with their own importance, not realizing that, hey, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong, the despised things, even the things that are not. Every time I get a little too full of myself, Seth, my response is to go back and remember who I really am. And apart from Christ, that's not a pretty sight. Thanks for the question. Here is an anonymous question. Did Mary remain a virgin for her entire life? The answer, anonymous, is no. Bible says very clearly she had no relations with Joseph until Jesus was born. So Jesus, of course, was born to a virgin. But the Catholic doctrine of her perpetual virginity is false teaching. Uh, Jesus had other brothers and sisters from Joseph and Mary. And in fact, their names are given to us in the New Testament. Um, So that's just unbiblical uh, bad doctrine. So Mary did not remain a virgin, by the way, nor was she sinless. She was favored by God. She was blessed by God. She was unlike most of the other women in her time. She was the best of the best. But she wasn't perfect. 340-9585. We'd love to close the week with some of your questions. Here is one from Matthew. He says, Pastor Ron, there are some pastors who teach that everyone can and should speak in tongues. What is your position and why? Matthew, this is a little hard to describe. Now, clearly, I want to say that 1 Corinthians 12 um, lets us know, uh, 12 and 14, both in different contexts, that that not everybody speaks in tongues. Tongues is a gift from God. Every gift from God is a wonderful gift, and it's a gift that we should all desire. 
Um, but it is clear that not everybody will speak in tongues, and the reason not everybody will speak in tongues is because it doesn't make sense to them. It sounds like nonsense, and, and, and their, their faith is just not yet in that place where they can say, okay, Lord, I'm going to trust you with it. You know, those are people that are often thinking in terms of what makes sense to them rather than simply responding to a gift that God has given us. So um, not everyone is going to speak in tongues. But everyone should want to, Matthew. Everyone should want to speak in tongues. Now, the Apostle Paul says, I would that you all spoke in tongues more than I do. Now, because of that, I keep in mind what I just said, not everybody's going to receive the gift, not everybody's going to speak in tongues. I really do believe that God will give that gift to everybody. I mean, think about it. It's a gift that's meant uh, only vertically. It's a, a gift between the user and God. It's a gift that's meant to edify, to strengthen our relationship. Who wouldn't want that? Why wouldn't God want to give that gift to everybody? So while I do believe that God will give the gift to anyone and everyone, I also understand that there are a large number of people who won't receive the gift simply because it makes no sense to them. You know, Matthew, when you start speaking in tongues, the first thing that happens, the devil comes and and starts, oh, that's not you, you're just making that up. And because you don't know what it says, unless you've been given the gift of interpretation as well, which is unusual, um, it makes sense, the devil's lies. And yet, again, visit the question, why would we refuse any gift that God has given us? So, not everyone will Perhaps I can even say not everyone should. But I also believe that every believer can because I believe this is a gift that God wants them to have, Matthew. Tongues are controllable. It's not something that just overwhelms you. This isn't Acts chapter 2 tongues. That was a one-time only sign. Same thing would be true in Samaria with Philip's ministry after Peter and John went and laid hands on people. Um, But this is a gift that's to be used personally. As I said, it's a vertical gift just between you and God. Who wouldn't want a gift that would strengthen your relationship with Jesus? So, Matthew, um, probably the genesis of your question is you've been to a really charismatic church where they said if you don't speak in tongues, you're not filled with the Spirit. That's... Not true at all. That's really, really bad. And I would add harmful, really, really harmful teaching. Um, But I want to emphasize, I think it's such a great gift that everybody can receive it if they will by faith. So I hope that makes sense to you. We always get a lot of tongues questions. By the way, we're going to start not Sunday, but a week from Sunday in Second Timothy. That's a, a pretty short book. And then on Sundays here at Calvary Chapel, we're going to be going directly into First Corinthians. We'll be able to talk about all these issues in a verse-by-verse basis. Here's a question from Mitch. Mitch says, God wants us to believe but doesn't make himself known clearly. Is it okay to ask God for signs to prove he's real? Um, Mitch, I don't want to say it's not okay, but you've got to really examine your heart. What are the motives of your heart? 
Are you asking God to show himself to you? Jesus, just show up. I used to ask Jesus as a brand new believer um, to take me to heaven every night. I'd go to bed and say, okay, Lord, take me to heaven. I want to see. I want to know if I'm doing the right things. I want to know if I'm on the right track. Um, you know, I've been walking with Jesus 29 years. He's never taken me to heaven. He's going to one day, and I'm thrilled about that. But um, God basically was telling me, you know, open your eyes, open your heart, and I'll reveal myself to you. You're right, Mitch. God wants us to believe. He wants us to believe without seeing. That takes faith. It takes faith. Now, when you say, I'm going to argue with one statement you made, Mitch, that God doesn't make himself known clearly. I don't know how much more clear he could be. He came to earth in the form of a man. Now, we're not like Old Testament saints. You read about the Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame uh, of faith as servants. And they, they had to look forward. The Hebrew says all of these died without having received the promise, and yet they believed in what they couldn't see. Well, the truth is, historically, with undeniable, overwhelming evidence, Jesus has made himself known. And he came to reveal the Father. Not only that, but when he left this world, he sent the Spirit to reveal him. So I don't know how much more clearly he can make himself known than he already has. He became one of us in order that we would believe. Now, we want to see and believe. And yet the Bible teaches us to believe and then we'll see. And that's the question I would ask you, Mitch. Why do you need to see to believe when the evidence of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection is overwhelming? When we have his word, the complete revelation of God that demonstrates he knows us by name, what more do we need? Rather than ask God for signs to prove who he is, maybe God would say, how about you look at the evidence and decide for yourself who I am? As a new believer, I was so filled with questions, Mitch, that I was always asking for the... You know, my, my, my signs wasn't for his reality. I met Jesus. I knew he was real. In an instant, my life was changed. But I had all these questions about, okay, what do I do now? What do I do next? And I would say, Lord, if you want me to go this way, give me a sign. If you want me to go that way, give me a sign. If you want me to do this, give me a sign. And, and see, that's just a sign of immaturity. You know what I started to do? I started to look at the eastern sky every morning. And without fail, I mean, it's clouds and sometimes we can't see it, but without fail, the sun comes up every morning in the east. The sun sets every evening in the west. The seasons come and they go when they're remarkably similar. It's cold every winter. It's hot every summer. It's glorious every spring. And it's really nice every fall. And these things happen over and over and over. They've happened for eons. That begs you to believe in the creator of all those things. So Mitch, how about believing 
and then seeing. I think it'll change your life. Good question, Mitch. Richard says, you mentioned a book by Gail Irwin, and I can't remember the title. Can you help? I can, um, Richard. Gail is a dear, dear friend. Gail and Ada are friends of of Apollos and mine. And uh, they're here as often as they can. Like me, they're getting old and don't travel as much as they used to. Uh, But the the book he's famous for is a book called The Jesus Style. It's available um, it's actually available for free if you go to Gail's website. I think his website is servantquarters.org. And, um, um, you know, he's, he's not interested in making money. He, if you ask for one, he'll, he'll send you one. Uh, but it is uh, a book that has been used all over the world for decades now um, to show people who this Jesus really is. So it's the Jesus style by Gail Irwin, E-R-W-I-N. And I can recommend it as highly as possible, Richard, because Gail um, loves the Lord. He's a man of great, great character. Fun guy to be around. Loves to tell stories. And most important, he actually lives his life after the principles in that book, The Jesus Style. And he's got other books, but that's the one that's made him famous. Okay, I just, my producer just told me that his website is servant.org. Servant.org. So, hope that helps, Richard. Thank you very, very much. Um, Laura wants to know, in the millennium, will resurrected Christians have families? Now, uh, I don't know if you mean, Laura, if we'll have new families, if we'll be married and have children. The answer to that question is no. Um, the reason the answer to that question is no, because in, in the millennium we'll be like angels who are neither married nor given in marriage. Jesus makes that point. Um, but we will have our families still with us. I tell Paul all the time that, that you know, God's going to make it. We're not going to be married in heaven, Jesus. We're gonna, or, or Paul, we're both going to be married to Jesus. But he's going to make you hang around with me. And, you know, when I was a new Christian and first read that we, we wouldn't be married in heaven, I thought, wait a minute. I messed this up for so long. Now I'm a Christian. we got a great marriage. And you're not going to let me be married for eternity? And the answer is I'll be married to him. And that means I'll have a capacity to love Paula infinitely more than I love her now. And, and vice versa. Likewise, it's true the other way around. And, you know, for a lot of our lives together, Paula's been called poor Paula. She's married to Ron the Jerk, and finally Ron the Jerk got saved, and he became Ron the Jesus Freak. Poor Paula. Um, She's not going to get a break from me for eternity. We're going to hang out together. We're one flesh. We started in this walk together, and we're going to finish in the walk together, and, and certainly we'll be together when we are in the presence of the Lord. So no new babies, no sexual relationships in our glorified, resurrected bodies. Now, I will say this, Laura. In the millennium, when there are multiplied billions of people on the earth for a thousand years, you can only imagine how many people are going to be born in a, in a restored world. Um, they will be having families and babies for sure. They're, they'll be in their physical bodies, their, their earthly bodies. You and I, because we'll be taken to be with the Lord in the rapture, we will have received our glorified, resurrected body, physical for sure. 
but it'll be a body like Jesus's. And because we have already inherited that body, um, we're going to rule and reign with Jesus, and we'll be ruling and reigning over those who are left um, in their earthly bodies after the Great Tribulation. So, Laura, yeah, you'll love your family more than you ever did. You'll be surrounded by them, but we will not be having new families at all. Good question. Let's see, we get less than two minutes here for this. Here's a question I can answer anonymously, I think, very quickly. Um, how much of your church's money goes to help the poor instead of paying salaries? Uh, anonymous, some of our money goes to paying salaries for sure. Uh, we got people on the staff, we got teachers, we got doctors, we got everybody. And, you know, they got to make a living, so we pay them. But one of the great things about what we do here at Calvary Chapel is that all the stuff that we do with those men and women is free. We have a free school. Um, where can you get a great Christian education for free? Uh, we have a doctor's office, Multimedical, where people come in, and it's free. They don't have to, they, they, we don't even take insurance. And we've had um, some 30,000-odd patients in our eight-plus years of being open at, at Multimedical. Uh, we got a house for women in trouble, and and uh, all of that's free. So all of the things that we do here are free. In addition to that, we help the people in the body whenever we can. That's that's one thing we're supposed to do. We take care of them, so we do it. So um, our money is tied up in all those free things, and they're expensive. So cynical question, maybe, but there's your answer. Hey, we've got 30 minutes left in the week. We'd love your calls. The phone's been quiet. 340-9585. We'll be back in two minutes. If you have questions about the Bible, you can send them to Pastor Ron and he'll answer them on the air or reply directly to you. Email your questions to PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to our final half hour of the week, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Let's go to our first phone call, Cindy from San Antonio on line one. Cindy, good to hear from you. How are you doing? I'm fine, Pastor Ron. It's Happy Friday again. Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know what? I was reading in Galatians uh, this morning, and uh, it was Galatians 6, verse 17. It's the uh, NIV, and it says, Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. You know, and that's Paul writing, of course. So I thought that was kind of a neat little tidbit of information and I'll get off the phone and listen on on the radio. Good to, good to hear you. Bye. Thank you, Cindy. God bless you. Uh, I, I kind of always laugh at the Galatians. It's a very contentious letter. Um, Paul is running into or the churches in Galatia are running into legalizers, Judaizers, um, who are false teachers and he's taking them to task. He's making the case that we're saved by grace. By grace through faith and not by works, not by becoming Jewish, not by keeping the Sabbath, not by being circumcised. 
And and basically, when you get to this this ending in Galatians six, and that's one of the great chapters in our New Testament, by the way. When you get to this this ending, um, after after saying peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God, to the chosen of God, he says, finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Now, two things that he's saying there. Now, one of them is going to sound a little arrogant, but it really isn't meant that way by Paul. We have to know his heart. Basically, what he's saying is, look, if you mess with me, you're messing with Jesus. Don't cause me trouble because I'm Jesus' guy. And remember, there were a bunch of people causing problems for him and trying to undo the doctrinal truth that he established in the regions of Galatia. Secondly, he says, he bears on his body. Excuse me, that was a sneeze break. He bears on his body the marks of Jesus. And because he bears on his body the marks of Jesus, saying, look, this is my authority. Now he's talking about the beatings. Read 2 Corinthians 12 and 4, the things that he's gone through. The 40 lashes minus one, five times he received, the stonings, the times that he was put in stocks. And what he's saying is, look, don't cause me trouble until you can show me the marks on your body. I carry these marks on my body as the validation that I'm serving the Lord. You know what's an amazing thing, Cindy, and this is for all of you to think about? That even the great Apostle Paul had false teachers, people that would try to ruin his reputation, to ruin the work, to to eliminate the fruit that was being produced. We know the enemy is behind all that. But there are people, that happens with every great preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who now is sort of the gold standard of preachers, pretty much for people that live in our time, it's like, boy, Spurgeon said this and Spurgeon said that. Spurgeon died in disgrace, having been discredited, not because he did anything wrong, but because there were so many people accusing him of doing things that he hadn't done wrong. And that was sort of his inglorious end. Well, we know with the Apostle Paul in some of his other epistles he talks about don't be ashamed of me because of these chains. And there were people who would look at his life and say, well, you think if he was really serving God, if he was really right in these things, you think God would let him be in prison? No, if he was serving God, he'd be out, he'd be free. And Paul is basically saying at the end of Galatians here, he says, don't mess with me or Jesus will mess with you. Again, I don't mean that to sound arrogant at all, but here's what he's saying. I have proof of my service for the Lord. What is your proof? Good question, Cindy. Thank you for calling. Here is a question from Zach. He said, Pastor Ron, do you think coronavirus is a sign of the end of the world? I do not, Zach. It's really important that we're careful how we view these things. Um... I think it's one of the things that proves that we're in the last days, as if we needed more proof, but certainly this is just an evidence. 
Uh, in the end, he said there'll be famines, there'll be pestilence, there'll be all of these things. And we can look around and see those kind of things happening in our world. But it's not just that. Just look at the condition of the world. It's a condition that he describes, Paul does, in Second Timothy chapter 3. So we've got signs that we're in the end of the times, the very, very, very last of the last days, all around us. But this is not a judgment of God. This is evidently a man-made virus that's been let loose on the world. And boy, the people who created it are going to pay. Believe me, they're going to pay when they stand before Jesus. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. But we have to be careful when we pronounce something a judgment from God. Now, here's why. Uh, I have already had the virus, and I uh, have recovered from it. Paul, the same thing is true of her. And um, God doesn't judge us. He doesn't judge his people. Our sins have already been judged. Now, we face consequences of things, and you know things that affect the world affect us, but it's not from God. God can't judge the righteous with the wicked, so this is not a sign of the end of the world at all. Having said that, Zach, I believe with all of my heart that we truly are in the last days. We truly are in the very last days. Jesus is coming soon, and we need to be ready. So thanks for the question. Let's go to uh, my friend Federico from San Antonio on line one. Federico, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Gloria Dios bienaventurado. How are you all doing? I'm doing well, Federico. How about you? I heard about your church. I said, oh, Lord, I hope they have been praying and I'm hoping that it doesn't, uh, it doesn't get serious. Yeah, thank you, Federico. Appreciate your prayers. Uh, we, we, we're fine. Um, uh, we had a bunch of people come down with the, with the virus. Um, and, and at this point, everybody is sort of through their quarantine period. Uh, we haven't had anything serious happen. And uh, all the people who, who uh, contracted the coronavirus are uh, still crazy in love with Jesus. So uh, we're doing fine. Thank you for your prayers. Tim? I think we lost Federico. Thank you for your prayers, Federico. We lost you on the line. So um, let's go to another question. We've got a question from Greg. Greg says, It seems you never deal with the contradictions and inconsistencies in the Bible. Are you afraid to honestly admit that the Bible is not inspired, not inerrant, and not the Word of God? Um, Greg, if you would show me one, then I'd be happy to deal with it. And here's, and you can do it, you can write it in, you can call it in, just show me one. I have people all the time say, what about all the inconsistencies and, or the contradictions? There aren't any. I can explain, not explain away. I can explain them all. And um, so the answer is, I cannot honestly admit that the Bible is not inspired nor inerrant and not the Word of God, because it's proven over and over and over, Greg, that it is. Um, drop your cynicism. Open the Word of God with a heart to say, okay, God, be, you can be cynical to God. Say, God, I don't believe in you. Open the book of John, the Gospel of John, and say, Jesus, if you're real, you reveal yourself to me and he'll do it. 
And then when you get a little bit interested, I got, and you're honestly seeking answers, I got a whole bunch of books that'll show you just how exactly inspired the word is. Let's go to Glenn on line one from San Antonio. Glenn, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Yeah, thank you, brother Ron. Um, mm-hmm. I, I often look at and read in Oswald Chambers a devotion book. He has my utmost for his highest, mm-hmm. and uh, I've been was reading one, and it's about wrestling before God. And I have some questions I just wanted to ask you, and mm-hmm. that is in Ephesians six. Uh, chapter 6, it talks about taking up the whole armor of God and always praying. And in this devotion, it, it, it talks about uh, always making a distinction between God's perfect will and His permissive will, which He uses to accomplish His divine purpose for our lives. God's perfect will is unchangeable. And it is with His permissive will are the various things that he allows into our lives that we must wrestle before him. It is our reaction to these things allowed by his permissive will that enables us to come to the point of seeing his perfect will for us. And then it, it says Romans eight twenty eight. of course, we know that all things work together for the good of those that love the Lord. So I'd appreciate your thoughts on that, and, and uh, I'll be listening. Thank you, Glenn. appreciate it very much. I, I enjoy Oswald Chambers, my atmosphere is highest. But here's one of the problems I have with devotions. You know, they can get so general um, that um, they can apply almost to anything. Uh, let me suggest to you that you read Genesis chapter 32, where Jacob wrestles with Jesus, and read that devotion in the light of that chapter. Now, here's the real problem I have with Oswald Chambers in this particular uh, context. Um, there's only one will of God. God is perfect. God God resists everything that keeps us out of that perfect will. Um, before I got saved, I was going to be a pastor. I didn't know it. God did everything he could to get me where I am. And now, once saved, I can look back at my life before Christ when I didn't even know him and all of the things that he did to prepare me. So God was, on his part, Glenn, going to do anything and everything that he could do to ensure that I would be where I was born to do. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says that we're created in Christ Jesus. We're his poem, his expression of beauty, his expression of creativity, created in Christ to do good works, which he prepared beforehand for us to do. So that's the only will. When we read in Romans, it's perfect, pleasing, acceptable will in the King James. It doesn't mean there are three wills of God. So the idea here that we have a perfect will and a permissive will is fallacious. Now, Romans 8.28 does go into work when we make the wrong choice. It's not like God says, well, you know, he settled for less than I want, but, you know, I'm going to work all these things together for good. That's not what that means at all. What God is going to do when we're not in his perfect will is he's going to keep nudging us back to that place where we can be in his perfect will. And that's the one place he wants us to be. And the way we're going to find that is to serve him, to be obedient one day we're going to wake up and say, how did I ever get here? And Jesus is going to smile and say, well, I brought you here. It was always my plan. 
So there's no such thing as a permissive will. I think a lot of times, Glenn, we Christians, we like to think that because it gives us the opportunity to stop short of God's perfect will for our lives and justify it. But believe me, there's only one will of God, and it is perfect will. And if we're following God, and you're not in his perfect will right now, he's going to do everything he can to ensure that you get in that perfect will of God, because that's the work that you were created to do from before the foundations of the world. So, Glenn, I hope that makes sense to you. Again, I like Oswald Chambers, and I like my utmost for his highest. But to, to, to think that God has a permissive will where he's going to let us He's going to be comfortable letting us settle for less than his best is to miss a much. We got Federico back on line two. Federico, thanks for calling back. You're on the air. Yes, sir. I was just hoping uh, no one had to have, uh, be hospitalized over that. But the yeah. same thing happened to me. Uh, the, oh, you, you got the elderly it too, huh? person that, Well, the elderly person that uh, mm-hmm. rent, is renting me this little room, he came down with it about a week and a half ago, but he thought it was the flu. Yeah. And uh, uh, he, he seems to be getting better, but then he, he started falling on us, on me and another roommate, and he's a pretty uh, heavy-set man. And, and uh, then the son came over, brought him some food, a little chicken soup with squash and stuff, and he wouldn't be eating for two or three days. I told him he hasn't been eating. He just ate a banana. Uh, yesterday he ate a little can soup, and I told him Javier, I, I need Javier Alvarez on on the prayer list, Pastor. And I told him Javier, at least go to with your son. I'll go with you at least so you can get some uh, plasma or some ID in you, and get some strength in your body. Well, he not even the son could convince him. And mm. two days later, he has he developed a high fever, and, and he went to the hospital, the ambulance, and the COVID. The little COVID station wagon showed up, and, mm-hmm. and I anointed him with oil, and I said, and I told him in Spanish, no, no temas, don't fear. You're going to come out of this. This is, a, this is a, a prueba, a trial. This is a test. And just keep your faith, your trust, and hope in God. You're going to come out. Right now, he's in the hospital. Uh, they got him on his stomach with the respirator, track in the trachea. They cut his throat and put a trachea in the... And uh, they were going to disconnect him yesterday to see if he can breathe. But we haven't heard no word from his family okay. if uh, he started breathing. So Rico, we, we, uh, we will keep him in prayer, too. Uh, we, we didn't, that, that, that I'm aware of, we didn't have anybody who was hospitalized. And most of the symptoms have been really light. I think one of the problems for this thing spreading is that when you get the symptoms, you don't realize what the symptoms are. You just don't feel, especially if you're asymptomatic, you just don't feel quite right, but you don't really feel like anything's wrong either, and we'll do that. So Federico, we'll be praying for him. Keep us posted how he's doing. Thank you for calling back. I appreciate it. Well, hold on, Let's go on, line wait, three. Wait. Oh, oh, okay. I get, go, ahead, go ahead, Federico. I've got somebody holding on the line. Okay, we lost him again. Let's go to line three, Jim from San Antonio. Jim, thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, thanks for taking a call again. Appreciate it. My pleasure, Jim. Um, this question about interceding for our country. I appreciate your wisdom and your diligence in praying yourself. Uh, for, for our country, I, I read Daniel 9 and how Daniel interceded with great compassion and fasting for his country uh, in light of 
captivity and Jeremiah's prediction that the 70 years would be over. I, mm-hmm. I have, can you look at that and see maybe a template, or are there some similarities that we can take from our great man Daniel and how he prayed for his country and how we could pray for ours as well? I, the last thing I'll mention is I heard a pastor share just on just our country, how we grieve the Lord, maybe not as Christians, but as people that are unbelievers, by three things, by just rejecting the Lord in general in our public you know, uh, discourse, by still allowing abortion, you know, old kids getting killed, and embracing homosexuality as a lifestyle with marriage and the Supreme Court decisions. Like, if those three things must grieve God so greatly, can we pray for mercy and just put that on the template of what Daniel prayed, I guess, for his people? Could you give me some insight on that, maybe for our own personal intercession for our country? Sure, Jim, I can. Thank you very, very much for the thoughtful question. A couple of things. Remember that Daniel was praying for people that belonged to God. They were a special called-out people. The United States never has been. You know, we get all of this propaganda that, you know, where we were a Christian nation and we were blessed by God. Um, we, we've never been a Christian nation. Our founding fathers, most of them were deists rather than Christians. But even though there were some Christians and God always has his people, we're not in the same place Daniel is. Um, you know, I think the template that we can follow when we read Daniel's prayers is that Daniel, who, who you can scour his book and you find no sin in his life. You find nothing bad. And yet he says over and over and over when he's praying for his nation, he's saying, Lord, we have sinned. What he's saying is, look, we're, we're all sinners and we've sinned and we've grieved your heart. And I think in the, that context, um, we who are believers, judgment begins at the house of God. We who are believers need to step up and take responsibility for our role. You know, we want to pray for a nation to get saved, but too many of us, we're not out in the streets telling people about Jesus. I don't mean street witnessing. I just mean as our day-to-day lives. We need to be telling people about Jesus. If we really cared for people, what we would do, Jim, is tell them about the, the Lord. We'd, we'd, we'd share the gospel with them. We don't do that, and we'd rather pray. And too much of what is called Christian prayer is prayer escaping responsibility for the condition of this world. Oh, Lord, it's those people who are killing babies. It's those people who are engaged in homosexuality. And God says, you know, those people are the object of your ministry. Those are the ones that I love. And I think we've got to accept responsibility for that. And the way we can do that is to pray, and, and here's the, the focus of my prayer, and I, I am constantly, daily praying for this nation. I'm praying that they would see the light, that they'd get saved. I pray that the Lord would send his spirit one more time before Jesus returns, one great revival. And I think something else that we need to understand, and we act as Christians sometimes like uh, there's a great punishment for um, abortion. There's a great punishment, national punishment for um, same-sex marriage and homosexuality being so so prevalent. Um, God never expects unbelievers to act like believers. Never. I don't know why we Christians do. Why would we expect unbelievers not to be in homosexual relationships? Why would we expect unbelievers not to have abortions? I'll say this, Jim, and this is my opinion. That's all it is. The United States of America, though not belonging to God ever at any time in our history, 
We have been blessed by God as no other nation slash empire in the history of the world. In literally 200 years, less than 200 years, we became the most powerful, most prosperous nation on the face of the earth. And I believe in God's plan that the role of the United States, I can look back historically and see that it was true, and it helps me explain some of the things that are going on now. I believe that we were established by God for one primary purpose, and that purpose is to be Israel's protector. When Israel came back into their own homeland in 1948 after nearly 2,000 years uh, apart from their homeland that's never, ever happened in the history of the world. The United States, as a result of winning World War II, was placed in the position of Israel's protector. God says, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. He said that to Abraham, speaking of Israel. And the United States has been the principal blesser of Israel in the world. And as long as we were doing that job, we were ourselves being blessed. Well, what's happened? What's happened in this so-called enlightened progressive age is that we've turned our back on Israel. We tried to convince him to give away land that belongs only to God. The way Israel is portrayed by our national media is a disgrace. How biased, how anti-Semite our press is. And we're paying the price for that. It's like we've turned away from God, we've lost our purpose, and now we're on our own. And, and the thing that you're going to see here, Jim, is that that our track record of being on our own really, really stinks. So we just don't do well. And until and unless we return to God and return to that position, I think we're going to be in for some really rough sliding. And of course, all we have to do is look around us. So Jim, for me, that's the reason. And one of the things we need to do as we pray is pray that we'll, we'll, we'll have a move of God's Spirit in our country one more time because there's no possible way that we're ever going to get back to the place of blessing without God's Spirit moving in the hearts of men and women. As for Christians, and I'll close out the program with this, we need to pray for the lost. We need to share the gospel with the lost. We need to pray for the peace of Israel. That's going to happen only when Jesus, the Prince of Peace, returns. But we need always to remember Judgment begins at the house of God. And we're held to a higher standard. Believe me, when an unbeliever has an abortion, it's not as painful to God as when a Christian denies his or her faith or when a Christian, a professing Christian, is living an ungodly life or when we've lost our passion for the the lost. So Jim, I hope that answers your question. Thank you. I love your thoughtful questions. Well, have a great weekend in the Lord. Get to church or watch church or whatever you're able to do. May the Lord bless you and keep you. You've been listening to the Word of Santa for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh. We'll be back on Monday, Lord willing, on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then.
Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. 